I would say something that is perfected to a point of grace. And um, when I think of that, I think less of um, like a typical piece of artwork, like a painting or whatever, but um, it's something that gets um, elevated beyond uh, the norm so that uh, it's special and you know it when you see it. And so an example would be watching um, an athlete do something at the peak of what their abilities are and you just get blown away by watching. You know, it, it, it looks like ballet, but it's basketball or skiing or, or something like that. Um, you know, just, to me, that's art. I think of it not so much as everything that you see is, is art. It's an art form, but the art is when they hit that um, special um, level and it becomes memorable in a way that elevates it above what we talked about earlier, which would be a gimmick or a cliche or um, something that's just trying to be clever. Welcome to the Art and Life Podcast with your host, Taylor Gallegos. Art exists all around us, in all directions, from all walks of life. We just need to know how to see it. The Art and Life Podcast is an experiment in an audio format that focuses on the art and philosophy involved with different people and their life paths. This experiment is intended to inspire you in your creative pursuits, whatever they may be. Follow along as I interview movers and shakers from all walks of life. It's possible to make a life from your art, skill, craft, or vision. These interviews showcase that fact. Listen while you work. Listen while you create. Listen while you dream up the next big breakthrough. I just want to say thank you to you, the listener, for being here. This podcast is intended to encourage, inspire, and entertain. The guests of this podcast are digging deep and putting it all out there. And without you on the listening end, it would not be the same. So if you like what you hear, hit subscribe and share it with someone you think might be into it. Now. On to the good stuff. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Gallegos. And with me today is a very special guest that I've known for a very long time and who's known me for a very long time. Uh, I'm very excited to have him on the podcast here. So, this is Mr. Bob Matatal, and he's got a background as a certified planner in urban design, working generally around architecture and the like. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to dive into this one. Bob, thanks for being on the podcast. Been looking forward to it. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a long time coming. Here we are. <laughs> um, so 
we're going to just dive right into it. And I'm going to ask you uh, a first question, which is, uh, what are you most interested in creatively right now? Um, right now? Well, I would say um, right now, it's uh, living a life that is creative uh, and designing and building things, but in a way where I experience um, all different levels of types of living. So my girlfriend and I um, share uh, projects and we own a five acre lot on a very, very rural part of the Olympic Peninsula looking into Olympic National Park on the only fjord in the lower 48 states. I myself live in a studio apartment um, about a 10 minute drive from downtown Seattle. And she has a suburban house in Edmonds, um, which is about 10 miles north of Seattle. And it's a ferry town. And growing up in Colorado, ferry towns to me are very much like ski towns. Um, the ferry comes and goes every um, hour, every half hour. And there is a line of people waiting to get on, waiting to get off. And so there's a little um, feeling of it's more than just that little town. So we have a lot of nice stuff going on in town um, related to the people coming in and coming through. So um, we are just finished doing the pandemic um, where my project was turning her basement into an apartment that she can rent out. And uh, I do a lot of volunteer work. Um, I'm on the facilities uh, committee for my Quaker meeting. Um, which entails a lot of gardening and maintenance and repair um, and uh, just planning for how to accommodate the campus, which is several buildings. Um, and then I just get involved with a lot of other uh, volunteer work related to design and planning. Sweet. Yeah. And uh, so you're located in the, the great Northwest. Mm hmm. And right on the olympic national park tell us tell us about that place because this is like a, a newer adventure for you yeah well um i've visited all 50 states i grew up in massachusetts on the water <clears throat> and right at 18 i wanted to live in washington i knew i wanted to be out here but because of uh how'd you know that oh i just knew that i wanted to be on the west coast and be more asian centric than uh, european centric mm -hmm. um uh, early uh, interest in sort of Eastern philosophies and uh, was kind of done with all the Judeo-Christian guilt and worry um, and was much more interested in Zen and Buddhism and Shintoism and uh, Confucianism and all the things that came from the um, East. Part of that was um, I was studying to be a landscape architect originally and so I was early uh, on uh, introduced to a lot of Japanese gardens and things like that and was just struck by the the whole um calmness of it coming from the east coast where everything's uh very busy uh that that was uh, enticing to me um there were other um factors but my parents were already retired wouldn't let me uh move west of the Mississippi so that's how I ended up at Purdue uh, meeting your stepdad and uh yeah. Um, then later, I uh, went back to Boston, fell in love with a classical harpist, and she looked at where I was applying to grad schools for architecture and uh, 
said, uh, there's no way I'm living in Texas. Um, not enough harp work in Albuquerque. Um, too many harpists in Seattle. And that's how I picked Denver for grad school. Um, that's where she wanted to go. <laughs> and then later, uh, after living in Telluride for a while, came back and um, was in a yoga class while I was finishing up my thesis and overheard um, a woman say she was from Seattle. Um, so I asked her if she'd have lunch with me so I could hear more about getting to Seattle and what it was like. And instead, we fell in love, had a kid, and it was 25 more years before I could uh, um, move to Seattle. So when the crash happened in 08, uh, I got laid off from my last design firm. Um, I moved out here with the expectation of wanting to be on the West Coast, not knowing where exactly, um, and have just stayed and have no intention of leaving at this point. It's home base to to get to the rest of the world, hopefully. Yeah, nice. It's cool that you mentioned um, like the Asian sensibility in the landscaping because uh, this for the last like four days I was in Los Angeles um, in Torrance and like the neighborhood where I was doing this project for an Airbnb, it seemed like uh, it was a lot of Asian families living there. And so like, and I, the biggest thing I noticed in walking my dog around was like the yards were so awesome. They were all like, there were like bonsai trees everywhere. And like the, like there was just exactly like you said, there's that like calm, sensibility to it. it was awesome yeah and there's a different approach to how you um maintain and garden and uh do it too it's the the process itself is um a buddhist meditation it's it's not about let's just go whack everything down and then go out and enjoy it with a barbecue yeah yeah it's like the whole thing is uh like a meditation which right. is i mean that's how like art itself when you're making art it should you know yeah you get in the zone in its highest form it's a meditation right yeah and then how does that uh translate into the work that you've done um you know with urban design building you know designing buildings and... well i started out um as a landscape architect ironically because i thought I was Wait, what was your what was your degree in originally that's what i was going to get at i okay. originally went out to study landscape architecture at purdue and um changed my major about four times because i was uh, first generation kid in my family at college. And to me, six months was a lifetime. And so um, it was an interesting dilemma. My dad had wanted to be an architect um, and had a tragedy early on in his life that was kind of traumatic. Uh, he lost his wife and his baby in childbirth. And uh, so he had to drop out of architecture school um, got a good job working for Procter & Gamble, but he made ivory soap for 35 years, just plotting the same routine day in, day out for 35 years. Jeez. And uh, he was older when I came along, 48. Um, and his idea of what architecture was, was kind of engineering. So I was absolutely not allowed to take art classes as a kid growing up. And I always liked to draw. And one of the first things I ever get was a compass and a triangle when I was five years old from him. But in high school, I couldn't take art classes. So ironically, I went to Purdue because their ag um, school is where the landscape program was as opposed to into a design school. And I thought I would never have to take math again. And I would save myself a year of school because it was a four-year program instead of five. Um, and then when I got there, um, because it was in the ag school, I had to take all of my design classes in the art department and found out I was really good at it. And so I changed my major several times between graphic design, industrial design, 
And then finally, I got a two years degree in um, technical illustration, which is essentially, um, if you have, imagine technical writing, this is technical drafting and drawing for um, industrial settings. So you do the brochures and uh, the graphic design for brochures and, and that sort of thing. Um, this is AutoCAD before AutoCAD. So we didn't yep. have PCs and I literally was generating perspectives and uh, doing all of the um, renderings and things that you'd see in a um, uh, an intro lobby for a building when you, you know, this is what the drawing and painting was of the building before it's done. Yeah. Um, so uh, I ended up staying the whole four years and had all the credits for four years, but I didn't have a four-year degree yet. So I went back to Boston and went to Northeastern, and they said the quickest way to do this is you just need to take some art history classes and a couple more studios, and we'll give you um, a degree in fine arts. So because I was at Purdue, I had taken chemistry, biology, um, all of that to get in. And so I knew now I was going to go ahead and do the architecture because I'd kind of gotten out of my dad's uh, shadow and said, I can do math. This isn't bad at all. And I had a wonderful art history teacher who um, I had for three classes, and she let me do all of my projects on architecture. So instead of just painting in this, she let me just focus on that. Wow. And her um, uh, husband was an Italian architect who was coming over here. She had met him in Italy. Um, she had done fascist architecture uh, as her thesis um, for grad school. And so I had her for three classes. They both took me under their wing kinda and convinced me that I could do grad school and that I should go ahead and do architecture. And they wrote out uh, um, you know, references for me and all of that. And uh, I ended up getting a bachelor of science in fine arts because of all the science classes I'd taken at Purdue. Huh. Um, so that worked out pretty well. And I did my physics and calculus there and got into architecture school. And that's when I applied to the schools that I, I mentioned earlier, because um, I knew I wanted to be out west. So I was trying to work my way farther after Indiana. Just didn't get that far <laughs> when the, on the first <laughs> try. Um, so uh, when I was at uh, CU, um, I ended up figuring out how to get through school by working. Um, while I was at Northeastern back in Boston, I had gotten a job with an environmental design firm. And uh, this was after I had uh, gone through um, a second attempt at a job that I hated, but paid pretty well and kept my uh, family happy. I was working for Raytheon as a technical illustrator, um, drawing the... Uh, electronics control panel for the Aegis missile, which were nuclear um, torpedoes on subs. Whoa. And I didn't know that's what I was doing when I got hired. So once I realized that's what I was doing, I quit and went back to the summer camp I worked at for three years during undergrad and was a camp counselor. Um, when I came back, uh, I had done an outward bound course in the Canyonlands and um thought okay now i know what i want to do i want to be a wilderness therapy counselor and i'd always been fascinated with therapy and psychology because 
of um, you know watching the trauma that my dad um, lived through and how it affected him and how it affected his parenting and you know the whole dynamic in our family. And uh, basically went through um, a period where I still psychologically uh, and emotionally connected to, to the family. Um, keep in mind, uh, I was sort of a spoiled, uh, overly parented kid because they were retired. I was their only project. So um, <laughs> I, I lived in the same room from the day I was born till the week I graduated from high school. And then they sold the house. And so I immediately moved out the week after graduation and got an apartment with two older friends that I used to play softball with. And uh, um, when I went off to Purdue, you know, he was always kind of a control freak. And he would, you know, if he paid for something, he could then tell me, you know, that I had to go to this or do that. And so when I first got out to school, he would uh, send me money to come home for Thanksgiving. And I sent him the check back and hitchhiked home. And that became uh, a fascination in travel that was also a spinoff of the uh, uh, travel that we did as a family. And so um, it, it started where I would say trying to creatively follow the rules, but um, show people that you can do something in a different way and it's still a valid way to do it. And so the assumption was that if you're hitchhiking, you're either gay or you're, you know, a street person and you're just broke and you're, um, you know, you're putting yourself in danger. But very quickly, I realized, well, most people get in car accidents within a mile of their house. Most people get mugged within, you know, 10 miles of where they work or uh, live. And I hardly ever hear stories in the news about anything happening to anybody hitchhiking. And so very quickly, I realized that that was much more about um, a conversation. People wanted to have an authentic conversation with you. And very quickly, I also realized everybody had a story they wanted to tell. And they may have perfected this because they've told it many times, uh, but you were being privileged enough to have this offered to you. And so the other thing that was fascinating was quite often, if you... Um, left after that ride, they knew they probably would never see you again. So they were more honest with you than they were with the other people in their life. And so it became like this co-additional um, uh, uh, fascination with psychology and people and this idea of the creativity of the conversation. So I, I really relished um, listening to people's stories. And the key was, in order for it to be a safe ride and a good conversation, you had to be authentic. So you had to figure out something to tap into um, about who you were or somebody you knew or what you'd experienced. And I'm only 18, so I haven't experienced a lot yet. Um, but quite often, you know, if um, the guy's a business person and he's just trying to get from A to B and he's just bored, um, you can tell them, you know, what your dad did or what your uncle did or something like that. Or if they were um, ex-military, I could talk about my brother um, who had been in the military, that kind of thing. And so you had to be honest and you had to um, uh, kind of share this. And if you could connect, um, then the ride went really well. And so that became something that I got pretty good at. And uh, 
I was always pretty gregarious as a kid because, uh, you know, I was an only child. So I was lonely for the most part when I was around home. Um, so I had to weasel my way into other families, as your family has found out over the years. <laughs> um, and so welcome. I always... Uh, welcome to weaseling. <laughs> yeah, I always enjoyed other people's um, dynamics, families, watching the relationships. And over time, I've been um, really blessed with a lot of uh, really good lifetime friends that um, supported me when I was sick later. Um, and at the same time, they had their regular lives. So I would kind of insert myself in at various times as I traveled and came back. But the key thing was that I kept in touch with these people, you know, for decades. You know, there were some people that just faded away, but the ones that I knew that I wanted to stay friends with, like your stepdad, um, I would just keep pestering and keep pestering and just <laughs> kept showing up. And, uh, you know, they they've watched all the changes in my life and, you know, sort of shook their head and stuff, but, you know, kept at it. Um, so that's been a, a really uh, big part of um, sort of the whole uh, creativity part of work for the last 15, 20 years. Uh, because how I survived when the crash happened um, was I literally would move in with these friends and I would do projects. So I would re-roof their house, I'd tile the bathroom, I'd landscape the yard, uh, but I would embed in the family. And so I literally would take the kids to basketball, give them a date night, um, help do laundry, you know, just shared as part of the um, a family. And so um, all of this kind of evolved over time. And uh, after working in ski areas, uh, I had come back down because of divorces to see my kids from the mountains and uh, got involved at CU. Um, and then eventually, um, uh, after finishing up my planning degree, um, was teaching and then got asked to be in a PhD program um, that had just started up. So I didn't have to apply. I didn't have to uh, even fill out um, an application. It just basically said, here, go and get started. It was the first class for this new program. And uh, what I was interested in after um, all of the travel and working in ski resorts was sustainable uh, resort and tourism design and cultural heritage tourism. And so the quickest way to describe that is being anti-Disney and anti-Vegas. And, and so then a theme kept emerging and it was tied to the urban design that I'd done earlier, which was also related to historic preservation. And that was about authenticity. And so um, I would say the authenticity. Authenticity, yeah, like in in, uh, in what way? I mean, I guess I'm thinking Disney and Vegas are the antithesis of authenticity. Right. You know, they're just like sort of like uh, replicas of things that are real. Is that so you're. You're going the complete opposite direction in designing and like wanting things to be full. Yeah. So what I did um, in Telluride, Breckenridge, Stowe, and then as a consultant for years was um, to try to determine what the sense of a place was in all of its totality. What's the history? What's the um, the natural environment that affects the place? Um, in other words, where did the materials come from? Um, why do you see a lot of red sandstone all over the front range of Colorado, that type of thing? Um, what was the history that made certain uh, things important to that town? 
Um, so there may be specific locations where people go to all the time and there's rituals that are about, you know, where do you, what's the best place to go watch a sunset? And so it was saving these places, um, preserving them, and then describing them, and then also coming up with design guidelines so that you can maintain whole neighborhoods and uh, uh, historic districts in the intact form. Yeah. Um, and so the authenticity becomes, you can, uh, I guess from a design standpoint, I would say that um, a lot of people say they don't like rules and regulations relating to design. Um, I actually find that the best creativity comes from constraints. And so the people who don't like those constraints are kind of lazy designers. Um, they want to just be able to do what they want to do without having to adapt to the place and to what that context is and to the rules that are there. And I find that some of the best designs are the ones where they were pushed a little bit because they had these constraints and then they came up with a response that showed that they understood um, this underlying authentic uh, situation. Yeah, totally. Because it's in the bigger context of what's all around it and what's all happening. Right. I mean, without that, then, yeah, I could see how a design would just sort of be like a freestanding thing with no context, no interaction or relationship with the surrounding history, buildings, environment, anything. Right. And quite often, some designers um, get to the point where, like a lot of artists, the ego takes over and it's much more about and some of them are good enough to be able to do it, but not everybody. And so therefore um, the rules. But, you know, you get the idea of um, the look at me buildings and uh, some of those are appropriate for certain institutional buildings and things. But sometimes it's just um, you wonder why the person had to do that. <laughs> right yeah it's funny because you can think of like all the you know the egos of some of the biggest creators and uh we all just sort of like accept that they have these egos and like that's what happens when you get to be a really big deal um but uh i don't know i guess like you you sort of said implied that it's warranted at a certain point but is it ever really and is it ever really a positive thing i don't know well, I think what happens is that once you've made your mark, you're going to get hired for specific projects that are landmark projects. Yeah, that's um, maybe an appropriate uh, connection, and that's an earned, uh, you know, um, project. But there's a lot of people that are trying to get to that place, and their trial and error. Um, on certain buildings isn't warranted in that direction. Sometimes there's just background buildings. They, they don't need to all be screaming at you. If you go to some places that feel the most pleasant, there'll be a few landmarks in specific areas, um, but then uh, the commercial buildings blend together in a way that's just really harmonious and it all builds on each other. And so the simplicity of following the rules on one building and then adding it to the next and then the next and the next, it all becomes a cumulative um increased pleasant feeling you know like when you're going down the street in a uh, um santa fe uh santa barbara uh taos um telluride breckenridge some of these places that have some history that have been preserved um 
you know, it, it, there's a, a definite feeling of uh, synergy. The, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, totally. So that's what you were thinking, what you were doing with like the urban design element yeah. is you're looking at like the big picture of what a city is saying and what it's, what it's right. all about. So my favorite story about how ironic um, what success was, um, when I originally went down to Telluride to do my architecture thesis, I was going to take the railroad depot and make it into an arts complex. I had volunteered for several of the festivals over, over the years that I was in school, and they each had their own separate uh, promoters and organizations. So they were repeating a lot of the same efforts. Um, so there was no single ticket office. There was no storage for the same equipment uh, and that sort of thing. And so my idea was to make this uh, something where... Uh, musicians and artists that came for the weekend could teach classes and stay um, Monday through Friday and expand um, the impact to the economy for the town. Well, the town liked it. They hired me. And then over the course of the three years that I was working there, there was a lot of discussion about a new hotel going into the valley. And if you've ever been to Telluride, it's this very tight, constrained canyon um, with a very small scale of um, historic buildings. And there's been some new, but most of them have been done pretty well um, because of the historic district. And so I took this property and said, if you don't subdivide it into smaller lots or buy it and then just change the zoning or, uh, yeah, you could buy it or change the zoning. Um, the best you can get is, and then I designed this hotel, um, that ended up being a 250,000 square foot hotel convention center. And it wasn't bad looking. It just was so uh, enormous that it dwarfed the town around it. So a developer across the river from this property bought the property because he saw what I was trying to show and subdivided into lots that allowed only three story accommodations, townhomes, which was much more in line with it. So I always joked that my project was so successful, it was never built. <laughs> and then right after that, the Peaks Hotel went in up at the uh, Mountain Village. Part of it was just marketing and time of economics. I don't think they built up there just because of my project, but there were all these hotels that were looking at properties and they did get the message that up on uh, the Mountain Village was uh, more appropriate for a large new big hotel. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so then uh, how does all that translate into what you're what you're doing these days with your art? Well, what I'm doing now. Well, um, yeah, go ahead. But, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, what I'm doing now, uh, like I said, has been much more about uh, the travel, um, uh, visiting friends, maintaining friendships. Um, I live out here now, but my daughter still lives in Denver. So I try to, you know, get there a couple of times a year. Um, I've got a stepdaughter that lives in uh, Oakland. So I try to get down there. Um, and then because of the PhD work, um, I've just been fascinated with um, how to travel, um, what to do when I travel. And it became much more about, uh, the best way I can describe it is every day is a field trip, like when you were in high school. 
<laughs> and so I learned how to create my own field trips. Um, I've realized that most people are pretty excited about what they do, and they're more than happy to show you around when you ask them. So you can just pick almost anywhere, knock on the door and say, I'm curious what's going on. And if you show them you've learned your back uh, history about the place and, and that you're interested, they'll just invite you in and show you around. <laughs> and so um, I've uh, usually picked themes. And what I would do when I stay with somebody is I then, um, you know, do tours around that area. Um, and so over the course of... Um, 20 years, uh, in addition to the other trips that I did, um, I've pretty much been to every national park except for about 10 or 15. Um, a lot of, I've been to every state several times. Um, and it's been a combination of hitchhiking, uh, buses, Craigslist rides, uh, driving myself, some flying. But uh, I really love the interaction. And to be honest, flying is fun for 15 minutes at the beginning and 15 minutes at the end. And then you just cramp sitting in a, um, a tin can for several hours. So I'd much rather drive someplace. Uh, um, buses have gotten much better. Um, they're now pretty much air conditioned coaches with uh, internet and all these new um, express buses like bolt buses and mega buses. Um, that are regional uh, carriers that are express. Uh, so you don't have to do the old Greyhound of a stop every 20 minutes in every little town. Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty nice. Uh, but I usually have a theme, you know, so um, another friend of mine uh, from grad school has about eight brothers and sisters, and he's got a sister that teaches art in Mississippi. And she happens to live in Clarksdale, um, which is where the blues were essentially uh, created. Uh, on a plantation outside of town. Uh, and it wasn't a, a slave plantation. This was a, a timber plantation in the uh, um, 1800s. Uh, and so um, I worked at her house for a while, did some uh, landscaping. You know, I, I love to do spring cleanup on people's houses for like three weeks. And I literally am just crawling around doing yoga and I don't use any power tools. Everything's hand snipped and stuff and then raked up and um, get to know the yard really well, what plants are there, um, get to know the pattern of why things were laid out. It's kind of like archaeology to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, but anyways, um, she's got a brother that lives there and uh, he has uh, a canoe company called Quapa, um, which is, a, I think, a Creek word or a Cherokee word. I'm not sure which. But essentially, he's got um, eight person dugout canoes and he does overnights on the Mississippi River and he's a guide and he's become um, like really knowledgeable about the natural history of the Mississippi just published an eight uh, volume set um, been from Minnesota all the way down to um, the, the Gulf several times and so um, they all live in the same town and this is essentially where if you remember the um, song Crossroads that Eric Clapton did, really famous. It's basically right. where Robert Johnson supposedly sold his soul to the devil. Oh, yeah. Uh, Learn how to play the guitar so well. Yeah. And so the intersection of that, um, uh, I can't remember, Highway 61. I'm not sure what the, um, the roads are, but it's the main route from the south going up to Chicago when the uh, large exodus of uh, African Americans left. Uh, 
uh, farm settings to go work in Detroit and Chicago. So this town had um, all this blues history and um, it was just fascinating to, to visit. And so from there, I went and saw some of the famous studios from the 60s and the 50s. Um, and, uh, you know, one day, for example, I'm in Tennessee and I pull into a state park to go camping and asked if there was any uh, uh, bicycle rentals. And this woman goes, no, but literally gets on the phone, calls her husband and goes, hey, is the bike still in the barn? Yeah, well, come bring it down, will you? And she just gives me a bike to use for three days. And <laughs> he asked me where I'm going. I go, well, I'm going to go see these studio guys. Well, you're going to go to the Helen Keller house, right? I go, no, I didn't know. Is that here? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, that's just over this way. I'll throw the bike in the back and I'll drive you up there. And then you can ride the bike back to the studios. And he drops me off at this National Historic Site of Helen Keller's house where, you know, she learned uh, how to communicate as a, um, a young girl and, uh, so that was pretty amazing and uh, just dropped the bike off behind the visitor center three days later and kept going. Um, and so there's just endless stories like that that become part of what makes the trip so uh, fascinating. And those are what I seek out and that's I'd say what the creativity of the trip is. So there's an awful lot of changing. I don't have a set itinerary I find something out and then I go, I got to go see that while I'm here and that kind of thing. So another really good example was I was on my way to Tupelo um, to uh, uh, see where Elvis was born. And the night before I uh, had gone to the studio um, where um, it was hard. I think his name was Tom Hall or John, Tom, Tom T. Hall. It's a white guy who had a whole series of uh, backup musicians and the amount of music that came out of there was um, Aretha Franklin, the Rolling Stones. I mean, it just goes on and on and on because it was in the middle of nowhere and they didn't have any distractions like they would in New York or L.A. And so I go to that and I'm listening to this wonderful uh, show and they go, oh, you should come out afterwards. We're playing tonight. And so. I go get something to eat and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden across the river or across the road, I can hear this guy playing an Indian flute in the window well um, or the door well to a, a business. And I just got a free concert for like a half an hour. So the next day I'm hitchhiking towards Tupelo and I get picked up by this guy and he tells me, um, you got to go see this uh, stone wall. And uh, I go, what, what, what's the stone wall? And it turns out there was this guy whose mother, no, grandmother had been on the Trail of Tears. And she was only 17 years old at the time. And she walked all the way to Oklahoma. And then when she got there, they just dropped all these Indians off. Um, they didn't have, um, you know, any kind of barricade or whatever. They just brought them out into the wilderness and said, you're here now. And so they rounded them all up back in the east and sent them back there. So she just goes, well, nobody here. I'm going home. And so she turned around and just walked back by herself. And so he lived on this, uh, or the, the grandson lived on this property that she had left him. And he decided when he was in his 50s, he was going to lay a stone to become part of a wall for every step she took. Some days he did a lot more. By the time I got there, this um, stone wall went 
in both directions on either side of his front uh, porch. And uh, it was probably a mile and a half long um, combined. Um, and he had little um, sitting areas um, that were like altars and uh, kind of kivas made out of the stone. And he'd had over 60 or 70 Indian tribes come and do ceremonies there. And they'd left, uh, um, you know, different, uh, how to describe it, um, remnants of things that they wanted to uh, celebrate. And so um, I'm chatting with this guy on his front porch and he's telling me all about this, you know, and just having a great time. Uh, and so then um, after I leave, I'm hitchhiking. And it turns out that the guy that was across the street the night before picks me up and I tell him where I had just come from. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he just did a whole show for PBS and I got to play the flute on the soundtrack for the whole thing. Um, let's go back. And so I can say hi to him. <laughs> so he turns around, drives all the way back, says hi to this guy. And they start talking about the TV show. The guy didn't tell me anything about it before. And it's just a nice interaction. <laughs> we climb back in the truck. He drives me all the way to Tupelo and drops me off in front of Elvis's house. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's all sorts of strange um, interactions that I get to have like this. And if you're open to shifting your, um, your schedule or um, your expectations, um, they can become wonderful. Oh, um, so one of my other themes was I'm a big baseball fan and I managed to go to every major league baseball park on all these trips. <laughs> and a big part of it that was funny was uh, um, I had cancer back in 2012. And so I still was traveling right after um, I got through with my treatment, but I'm on crutches and, you know, a lot uh, thinner than I was now. So I would buy the cheapest ticket I could get. And then I would go sit legitimately in the um, handicap seats uh, behind, um, you know, a certain section. And inevitably, somebody would come up to me that worked there, and they would say, um, you want to sit in this section? And they'd move me behind home plate with the ballparks, uh, fam uh, ball players' families. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so that was a big thing for me, because um, I got to work on a project in Florida that was uh, in St. Petersburg, and it was all about... Uh, you know, redoing the area around Tropicana Field, which is where the Devil Rays play. And so I got interested in um, how ballparks could change um, whole areas of a city, just like Coors Field did in Denver, Jacobs Field did in Cleveland. And so it was fascinating to see how each city was different and how they'd incorporated their authenticity. And uh, I was pretty impressed by um, the results of a lot of the parks and what they came up with. Yeah. <laughs> like when you leave Baltimore's uh, Camden Yards, you immediately see a baseball on the sidewalk. And if you follow it, it takes you to Babe Ruth's ba um, boyhood home. Wow. And in Cincinnati, um, they have a rose garden and they have um, all red roses. And then there's one white rose bush in the middle of it. And that's where um, uh, representing Pete Rose's 3000th hit, uh, you know, or 4000th, whatever his. He broke the record at. Um, and so, you know, he's got um, a whole wall inside with a baseball for every single um, hit that he had. Um, and there's just endless little um, orientations like that that are pretty wonderful. 
So each each ballpark's got a unique design, and the best ones take advantage of the city they're in and the history of the ballpark or the um, ball team. Yeah, yeah, I love projects that are like multifaceted like that. They just keep on like it's almost like a braid, where like the the essence the the things just keep on bringing you back to the essence. Yes, the new strand like brings you back in in just like a new way. Yep um nice well this is great i'm loving this podcast episode (laughs) it's cool because like before we started we talked about you know creativity in your life and uh and you said that you know your life you see your life as your art and it's really neat because you know the way you travel the the your the way you travel is sort of the way is the same way that you look at doing urban planning and and like bringing the essence, the authenticity, like wrapping it, braiding it all back into itself. And uh, yeah, it was cool. I mean, like I was, you came and visited me in San Diego. um, I don't know, eight years ago, 10 years ago, something like that. And we spent a couple of days just like hanging out and uh, it was fun just having you, you know, drop your wisdom on me. I was just soaking it all up. And the- well, I was getting a lot from you too because I was in a new place. So that was the first time I'd ever been in the surfer world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I think that... Yeah, did we go to the Padres game? I think we might have. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, down at Petco Park. I think we did. I think we, yeah, I think we did. Yep. Uh, Petco is probably one of my favorite ballparks. Is it? Uh, yeah, because instead of trying to be um, uh, the same retro uh, copy of other ballparks uh, that looked like 100 years old, it actually took advantage of its site um, and then built a very modern building um, there. So uh, Antoine Predock is out of Albuquerque, and he does some pretty amazing modernist stuff. I don't usually like modernist architecture because it's kind of lazy and um, it's just an excuse to be cheap um, in many cases. Um, <laughs> but this was uh, spectacular. And so they took an existing um, historic building and the corner of that building became the left field foul pole. And he popped out windows and there's literally balconies um, that just stick right out over left field in that historic building. And the whole park is oriented uh, based on that existing building. So because of that being left field, now where home plate is and the shift of everything is related to that one building and it just cascades from there. Right, right, yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Do people, do Do you know if ball players have a problem with the orientation being different? Because uh, normally it's like know. a Because I'm not exactly sure how that fits into where the light is. Um, that's usually the biggest problem is at different times of day, um, whether you're either pitching or batting, if the sun's coming straight into your face, um, you know, in late afternoon sun or uh, that right. kind of thing. So um, I would think that's probably not a big problem, although it might be hard from uh, the outfielders because uh, when you're in the outfield, you're facing towards the water. Home plate, when you're batting, you're basically looking east. Um, so I don't think it would be a problem, but don't know. Yeah. Um, sort of a off, like off question, but 
are you are you do you draw these days are you do you draw um, well i'm doing drafting um for some of my projects and i scribble out designs ahead of time i'm gonna have to start doing it more because i just uh hired a kid um to help me out with some projects and he wants to uh, go to architecture school um he's a carpenter now and so i have to give him sketches to that then draft in autocad so um you know, I haven't um, sketched as much as I'd like to, to be honest. And uh, it's something that um, because of uh, how I'm constantly moving around, uh, I tend to um, not sit in one place. So even when I'm in a city, I quite often will be walking or biking and uh, I see things uh, more like it's a video coming at me than uh, sitting in one spot looking at the same thing for for more than 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. As a, I mean, I'm always kind of envious of video as a, as a, like a major art form compared mm -hmm. to drawing because it, yeah, you can go frame by frame by frame uh, animations, you know, not that I, not that I couldn't do it, but if you, if you're going with drawing or a more traditional format media, then there are limitations. I take a lot of photographs on yeah. my phone and I would say that there's a, a process in my head where um, you know, you're trying to take the best picture. And so even though I might not even look at that picture again, and it's just stuck in my phone. I yeah. remember the picture because I get to the point where now I'm going to shit hit the shutter. Yeah. You know, and so that image um, I remember is the one I took. Yeah. Yeah. And so I kind of move through the landscape looking for those all the time. Um, so the idea of taking a picture makes me think about what I'm going to capture as I'm moving. So I'm always looking for the best shot of a building or the best combination of, um, of the light on a building or how the landscape sets up in the foreground to a building and that kind of thing. Yep. Yep. I'm doing the same thing. I feel like everywhere I'm going, I'm like, oh, that's a nice composition right there. Right. This line, you know, like I want, once you're trained in the world of art, like it's hard not to see it that way. Just Well, that's what you really are trained. Art. Yeah. It's how to see. I mean, that, that's see. kind of the, if you're in a visual art, that's the main thing you've been trained to do is to see. Right. Right. And uh, like, do you know who Rick Rubin is? Uh, I've heard the name. He's a big music producer. He's worked oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody big. And he put out a, a book recently called The Creative Act. And um, he was saying that like the essence of creativity is like uh, the noticing of something unique. Um, yeah. Like that's where it all starts. And, then, and the unique part, I would say, is what I think of as authenticity. Yeah. And so there's a lot of gimmicks and there's a lot of cleverness in art. Um, that just kind of, I, it just slides right by me. Yeah. You know, I can look at it and appreciate it for the cleverness, but it doesn't, it doesn't sink in. You know, I forget about that in 20 minutes. Yeah. And I think the cleverness, it, that's the sort of thing that can, those are the things that can wow the like general public, but there you're not going to wow another artist. Like, like musical gimmicks are not they're they're not gonna wow a musician. The musicians right. are like, yeah, I can also play the guitar over the back of my head. And everyone else is like, oh my God, this is incredible. 
painting yeah. the same thing mural all, all of it you know but then there's the elements that will impress the technicians the artists the musicians and those are the things that that those things have to be real and authentic right so an example would be going back to my very original statement of um my interest is kind of anti-disney and anti um vegas you know most of the strip to me is just gimmick after gimmick after gimmick you know here's a um fake venice here's a fake um eiffel tower here's a fake uh um you know pyramid you know they're all just quick gimmicks and um the real thing is infinitely you know better yeah yeah totally um you ready for the question section sure all right we'll dive into this okay uh question number one this is a new question that i haven't asked anybody yet um who in the world throughout all of time if you had the choice would you want to do a collaboration with collaboration that's an interesting one um well i guess you know that's sort of a fascinating one in terms of dealing with the fact that um i'd be picking somebody that i'm nowhere near in their league and uh trying to imagine what the collaboration would be um but you would also have advantages too. Like, let's say you worked with like Da Vinci, you would have the advantage of time and perspective of history. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Okay. Um, I'd say probably. Um, I don't want to say the obvious ones that would probably be in there, like a Frank Lloyd Wright or a Buckminster Fuller. Um, but one that I've gotten fascinated with, um, again. Um, from years ago is a guy named Carlo Scarpa. Uh, he's an Italian architect who um, did a wonderful job of doing sort of uh, modernism, but very uh, gritty, earthy modernism. A lot of concrete work, a lot of um, very simple metal hardware, and he would mesh it into ruins. So he would take um just broken down buildings and then he would recomplete them um with these new materials and they would be seamless and you would almost think oh of course that is is there you know and just really beautiful wow. um so he's one that inspired me a lot so i'd love to do something with him <laughs> i love the idea of taking something existing and being sustainable and using that to go forward yeah. so for example the basement apartment that i did um, everything came from Facebook Marketplace, practically. You know, um, all the cabinets, all the uh, tiles, all the, um, you know, I definitely bought some lumber and things, but uh, um, all the appliances, that kind of thing. And so um, when I did the tile, I didn't have enough to do a whole floor. So that meant I had to create patterns out of multiple tiles. And it just became sort of a jigsaw puzzle and became way more fun than just having a box emptying it out and throwing it on the ground yeah and then that speaks back to your concept of constraints in, cre yeah. in creativity like uh yeah you, if you don't have any constraints then you can just do the same you can just buy all the tiles and then there you go right cool i like that and there's so much material on this planet that just goes to waste like right why not? Well, and one of the scary parts is that so many of the materials that we have 
especially the ones that are doing the most damage, get sold as if they are a product when in reality they're a waste product from some other process that the company, rather than uh, consciously and responsibly disposing of it, is just trying to figure out a way to sell it to you so that it then keeps... Um, you know, in this in this waste stream, it just keeps moving through it. Like what? You know, oh, like all plastic, <laughs> practically yeah. all plastic. Yeah. You know, it's just a byproduct for the most part of fossil fuels uh, and oil. <laughs> and we're fucking drowning in it. Exactly. Sweet. Um, okay. Now, question two. Where would you like to see things go in five years from now? Things, huh? Um, uh, where would I like to see things go? Well, um, one of the things that's been um, on my mind a lot and that I've been working on with different uh, organizations uh, and volunteer work is, you know, there's been a really weird combination of the homelessness, um, the fentanyl, meth, and uh, opioid crisis, and uh, uh, the cost of living in uh, a lot of cities. And what we found out um, through a lot of research at, or not me, but um, several researchers that do statistics, um, that homelessness is a direct correlation to prosperity. You know, homelessness doesn't happen in cities that um, basically aren't doing that well and there's plenty of empty houses and stuff. It's directly related to cities like Denver, LA, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, um, that are doing really well, New York, Boston, and it's just too expensive um, for, the, uh, for the housing. And then understanding some of the dynamics of what it's like to be homeless and uh, seeing what's going on with um, sort of the drug crisis, um, I would say somehow getting a handle on um, what's going on with the fentanyl coming up from Mexico, it's being um, fabricated in a way that is no longer organic. It's um, got an endless supply. Um, I'd recommend two of the best books I've ever read um, about this in the last uh, couple of um, months uh, by a guy named Sam Quinones. Uh, he has a really good podcast with uh, Mark Marin, and he's been doing interviews and presentations all over the place. But he was a writer, went to Berkeley. Um, I think he was a reporter for the LA Times. He lives in Bakersfield. Uh, he's Hispanic, um, lived in Mexico for 10 years. And the first book was uh, essentially the... Um, unraveling an understanding of the opioid crisis. So he, he compares uh, the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma uh, to the uh, drug dealing of black tar heroin um, because the opiates were from morphine, which is um, from the same plant as heroin is. Um, and then the sec, and that was called Dreamland. And he looks at how uh, cities got devastated by this and how it took community um, to bring them back. And, uh, you know, what are the optimistic possibilities of how to deal with um, this crisis? Uh, and then uh, the second one is called The Least of Us. And essentially, um, fentanyl 
um, is a wonder drug that changed um, surgery. Um, it's 10 to 100 times more powerful than morphine, uh, but it also, um, you can put somebody under and bring them out almost immediately with a good anesthesiologist. Uh, but um, it's a synthetic drug and um, now can be made um, in, in endless uh, quantities. And so it's being uh, brought up and mixed in with all of the uh, other drugs that are being sold on the street. And uh, for a while, people were just mixing them up in magic bullets like blenders. And so this super powerful drug wouldn't get completely um, equally mixed. And so one little piece would have a chunk that was almost pure and that would go into a pill. And that's where all these overdoses are coming from that are um, now in greater numbers than people were dying from uh, the pandemic. Um, so Seattle has had more overdoses this year than um, deaths from COVID. Um, so anyway, um, I guess the biggest thing would be to see enough affordable housing built um, in all these cities um, to counter that uh, homelessness and enough changes in drug courts and um, legislatures uh, to deal with sort of the drug crisis in a way that is about rehabilitation uh, rather than uh, prison. Because quite often you put these people in for um, extended sentences. It just means that you're going to have somebody coming out um, trying to negotiate your community in much worse shape. Right. You know, they're going to, you know, just be more, um, they're going to be older with fewer skills, um, more anger, and they now got to go back into the community and you got to deal with them. So, um, so I'd say those are the two main things that I'd like to see um, change in the next uh, five years. Yeah. That'd be great. Like that. Yeah. Wicked problems right there. Yep. Complex, dynamic, wicked problems. Um, okay, question three is, this is advice for aspiring creatives with a capital C. These are people who are creative in all sorts of backgrounds and walks of life and styles and themes. What would you see as, say is the most important thing to focus on? Um, failing. Like, don't worry about it. Like, just go with it. Uh, my favorite um, acronym um, is FAIL, which just means first attempt in learning. And so um, just trial and error, um, you know, all the, the teaching and all the learning and all the books is great. Don't, I'm not saying get rid of, you know, standard normal ways of doing things, but especially when you're young, I think everybody's trying to figure out a path. They're trying to figure out a goal and an objective, what to do with their life. And um, I would um, hopefully convince people to ease up and see that uh, you're always going to have another chance. You know, just keep trying. And the worst thing is to be doing nothing and to sit around and just think, I can't do this. I can't do that. Well, if, you, if you're in that mode, then you might as well go do something and fail at it because, um, you know, what's the alternative? You're just going to be sitting and doing nothing, you know? So, so just get out there, do stuff and try it and fail at it and keep going. And, you know, pretty soon, you know, the whole 10,000 hours of Malcolm Gladwell's, um, you know, description of how to get 
proficient at something I think is, is so true and um, valid. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that. It's like, well, one, don't put so much pressure on yourself that it needs to be perfect right off the bat. Cause I think a lot of people have that problem. And then two, like you might as well do something because yeah. otherwise you're just sitting there and wasting time. When and and uh, I like it and it's cool, you know. You have the the wisdom of a long life of creativity and creative um, attempts at things, and so like you can see. I feel like you know when you're young, you're so in it, and it feels like there's there's so much riding on everything. And so there's like pressure and um, you just, you just feel like the, this uh, need for perfection maybe. Um, whereas when you're older and you're looking back on your life, you're like, oh man, when I was 20, I just like, I was such a baby. I was a baby. I had so much time ahead of me. Like I should have been trying everything and getting as creative as possible. And uh, yeah, it's nice to hear that. Well, another part of it is, um, if you just try it and you don't worry about the outcome as much, um, you're more likely to uh, develop some enthusiasm about just the process um, and then being engaged in something and aiming to get in the zone the best you can, you know, which is, is something that you really can't do until you've tried it many times. You know, it's, it's a practice thing. And yeah. so then once you practice, you just get into it and you let go. Um, but one of the things that I would say that I've been lucky with is that the best things in my life are the things that I didn't pursue. They came to me. I mean, they were within my field or within what I was doing. But, you know, like I said, the Ph.D. or different jobs, um, you know, quite often I didn't apply for a job. It was more of that I was working with somebody um, on a job. And they said, well, you want to do this? And why don't you come here and do that? You know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, a lot of jobs that I've had, you know, Telluride was a great example. I was doing my thesis. They liked the thesis. They offered me a job. I mean, it was an opening and I had to apply, but they said, you know, you should just come now. You're already, you know, doing it. You can finish this while you're working here, that kind of thing. And so that, that, um, that's part of the trip part. And when I was talking about traveling and um, I know I have a, a destination I got to get to and I got a certain amount of time, but how I get there is what I'm most excited to find out about. Like I don't follow that route the whole time. I'm, I'm just most excited to see how I'm going to get there. And so I just take those opportunities that come as, as the days go by. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, uh, I mean, just this last uh, Christmas, um, you know, talking to you and getting connected with Ryan. Yeah. And, you know, coming down the coast and then meeting another friend that lived in the same town, just a couple of miles up, hoping to connect them up. He's a landscaper who does unbelievable work. And we got to see the, the property that he lives in um, with an architect who owned the house. And it's like a mini botanical garden. And from there, we went to Ryan's um slept out got there at like 10 at night get to see his little cabins uh wake up the next morning and met him and his girlfriend and got a um a tour of the property and all that and now i'm looking forward to going back when he does the pours on his uh um uh earth rammed walls 
Yeah. Van Buren Wells later this spring. So yeah, that's so cool. And yeah, all I mean, these it, things keep up um, building on each other. So that came, that literally came from our trip from eight years ago. Yep. Yep. And it all came, I mean, really it comes from the essence that you are carrying, which is like, Hey, let's do cool things. Like yeah. I'm interested and let me know. And, you know, a couple of different ideas have come together throughout time. And then this one materialized and that's just how it goes. Right. Oh, yeah. I like it. Um, all right. Now the final question here is uh, the big one drum roll. What's your definition of art? It's my definition of art. Hmm. I would say something that is perfected to a point of grace. And um, when I think of that, I think less of um, like a typical piece of artwork, like a painting or whatever, but um, it's something that gets... Um, elevated beyond uh, the norm so that uh, it's it's special and you know it when you see it. And so an example would be watching um, an athlete do something at the peak of what their abilities are and you just get blown away by watching. You know, it, it, it looks like ballet, but it's basketball or skiing or or something like that. Um, you know, just to me, that's art. Um, and, and and all the other stuff is art too. You know, watching, uh, you know, um, ballet itself, or you know, whatever it might be. And I think of it not so much as everything that you see is is art. It's an art form, but the art is when they hit that um, special. Um, level and it becomes memorable in a way that elevates it above what we talked about earlier which would be a gimmick or a cliche or um something that's just trying to be clever you know um you know you can do the same thing uh in painting over and over and over again and um it's an art form but you know you know when there's a change and all of a sudden now this is what you think of as art that kind of thing yeah yeah as you're saying that i'm i'm just thinking about how you know you can say the word art a couple different ways and like you know that's art that's art but then there's like when something is an art it's like even the way that you say it you think about it it's like time kind of stands still and everything like just sharpens in on that specific yeah. thing that moment you know like the concept of and and i like that you're saying the athlete at their peak doing the thing it's like it's like an artist it's their best work ever their magnum opus right the musician's greatest guitar lick or whatever it's like what that that's like the highest form of art that an artist a creative can can do is when they like are firing on all cylinders and it and it, and, and when that happens it's in perfect flow right the... Is that, I mean, so going back to what I described, what I want to be able to do, or what my life has been trying to be, I don't think I'm ever there. But the person 
that I was most fascinated with that I emulated and thought did do it was Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. Um, I live, or Martha lives in uh, Edmonds and one of our, um, our neighbors that lives in this town um, has his business there is Rick Steves. Who's the guy that does um, all of the PBS travel in Europe um, programs? Okay, yeah. and he's a really nice guy, um, very different than Anthony Bourdain. But how he started was he used to do piano lessons, and all the money he got from piano lessons, he then ended up um, going backpacking in Europe, like as a teenager, but while he's still in high school, <laughs> he and his brother both did this. Uh, then he came back and ended up going to University of Washington, ended up finishing up and then went back to um, these trips. And now he's a multimillionaire. He's got a, a business with a travel agency. He does these shows on PBS uh, and on NPR at night. Um, and he's become this little institution, but all based on his little niche of how he appeals to people who want to travel um, to Europe, but don't want to go on big um tours and that sort of thing yeah 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 it's his it's his high point yeah it, he's like he, found he it and maxed it and right. i like you said you use the word grace yeah and uh that i think really stands out in terms of like anthony bourdain and the way that he interacted he just he flowed with every with everyone around him from whatever culture they were in and like he just had a, a real like graceful way of just being with people at least on right. TV. And, but, and one of the things that was fascinating that i loved about him and this is the way i felt from hitchhiking was that um we aren't all that different human beings are actually more similar than they are different oh yeah and it's fascinating to understand and see where the different things came from so, you know, why does somebody have a different color skin? Why does somebody talk a different way? They still love their kids. They still want to have families. They all still eat. They all still sleep. They all have to work to be able to get by. But all of these things just become part of the luck of where they ended up on the planet and the interactions that have happened. So I, I think it's fascinating to not ignore those things, but to actually cherish those things and try to figure out what, what they are. You know, and that goes back to when I said, what is the sense of place? Because um, the sense of place is what often creates all of these um, small differences, even though we're human beings that have the same wants, desires, and um, all of that. So all those other things are the fun part. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Yep, agreed. Um, all right. Well, this is the part of the uh the podcast where I thank my guest for coming on the show. Bob, I appreciate it. Um it's been great getting to know you through time. You know, it was awesome having you out. And uh you, you know, when you were here, it made a big impression on me. And like we just had these awesome talks, and I feel like I got a lot of wisdom and and it really like listening to your stories taught me a lot of how I want to travel and what I want my impact to be on people when I do travel and when I'm visiting people and, um, you know, just almost like I want to add to their 
time and experience more than they can give to me with like letting me stay in their room, you know, in their extra room or whatever, you know, I want to help out and um, have it be this like cool reciprocal experience. And, and uh, it's served me well. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. Exactly. Bob, you're, you're living a, a dynamic life. So I want to describe one little scene um, that goes way back to probably one of the first few times that I um, got to know you and your brother. And yep. so this was um, your mom and your stepdad's wedding. Okay. So yep. starts off in the back of Chautauqua, one of the coolest um, ideas that's ever come out of the United States and still exists as a historic landmark in Boulder. And after the ceremony in a flower garden, you and your brother get into a burly trailer behind a tandem bicycle that your mom and Chris get on. And then you drive down the hill to the art center for the reception. I just, that was one of my favorite weddings ever. <laughs> oh, that was a good time. Yep. Yep. It was beautiful. I remember all the dancing. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. All right. Well, we're going to take a break and, uh, you know jump back for part two but before we leave can you give us one more bit of wisdom just like a off the cuff wisdom about anything off the cuff about anything huh <laughs> um god i don't know yeah and whatever you do try to get out of your own way hmm so it was interesting when I was in uh, um, this Outward Bound course, we did a solo where you fast for three days and you're supposed to think about um, what you are given as sort of this, uh, it's kind of a mantra, but it's based on how the, the people that are leading the trip saw you interact in the previous um, first uh, uh, 10 days or so. And so mine was, uh, don't look under rocks for hidden meanings and just take life as it comes. <laughs> nice so then you had three days to think about that and get out of your own way right right <laughs> and then you know try to figure out whether i wanted to include that in my life and um, i have it's been something that i've tried to um you know carry with me uh into the future yeah and cool. it served me pretty well yeah nice all right, sweet. Well, that's great. All right, we'll be right back. Part two is brought to you by Steady State Roasting in Carlsbad, California. This place is my favorite coffee shop on the West Coast, and the coffee is the best. They roast all their own coffees from around the world and have a roasting collective for the local coffee-making community. Check them out in the village of Carlsbad or order their beans online at steadystateroasting.com. And we're back. Bob, how are you feeling? Pretty good. Yep. Yep. Did you feel, uh, did you feel nervous at all for the interview? Um, I, I wouldn't say nervous, but um, I was trying to imagine ahead of time what themes I could come up with based on creativity and trying to imagine what you might ask and um, trying to come up with some cohesive 
um, thoughts that weren't just ramblings. <laughs> how did how did your uh, outlook on it compare with the reality? Well, I tend to usually start off with, um, especially when you're doing a little intro of a bio, sort of the same stories that have perfected over time. So I threw in a lot of the same stuff that just kind of got to put out there if somebody doesn't know me. Um, but then usually depending on the interaction, it bears off on its own um, unique footing for that uh, conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I've uh, at the end of each season, I always have a friend take do a guest hosting role and then interview me. And uh, it's funny. I mean, there's, there's definitely, I, yeah, it's not like a nervousness, but there's definitely like energy and excitement and like butterflies mm -hmm. that go, that I've experienced from it. Um, in the last um, two years or so, uh, Martha and I, who is my travel partner um, now, and has been probably the best part of our connection is um, how good our trips are together. And um, before she uh, quit work, um she would have a a week vacation not a week vacation a week work conference and i would join her and then stay and travel in that area after she was done and went back home to work so we've managed to weave these things together pretty well and done a lot of trips to the midwest to visit her family and i've become sort of this um by choice honorary finn um She's gotten into her Finnish background over the last uh, couple of years um, in retirement. And we've got a goal both to go both to Finland and to Montebellard, France, to um, kind of dig into our uh, family histories. Mm -hmm. So that's another one of the themes of a lot of the trips I was taking. Um, for a while, I thought I was Cajun and uh, went down a... Uh, Lafayette, Louisiana for the International Festival uh, de Louisiane, which is all French speaking bands from all over the world um, that come in and, uh, you know, they have the basic Cajun stuff, but, you know, they had bands from Israel, from France, from Martinique, from um, Montreal, that sort of thing. Well, anyway, I got down there and then found out um, my family came over two years after the diaspora where the British kicked all the French out of Canada. And I thought I was from that and instead found out that uh, the British had actually recruited my family to take over the land that they had taken from the French because my family was French Protestant where most of France was Catholic. And so um, got into a unique history and then um, <laughs> that connected up with a bunch of Mennonites and Quakers and this third group called the Church of the Brethren. And so while um, I really enjoyed what I mentioned about what brought me to the West in the first place, which was this Asian influence, um, I've become real involved as sort of a atheist Quaker. And it's kind of cool to be able to say it with no worries, um, but it's all about the community. But I really loved sort of the history of the Quakers and what they've uh, um, accomplished with small numbers. And so, um, Talk That's about that a little bit. help for me. Tell is, us a little bit about the history of the Quakers. Well, the Quakers um, started in England and they had this very strong um, 
idea that uh, everybody's equal. You know, you just, everybody wants to, nobody can tell you what your interpretation of God is. You know, I mean, they, they totally anti-rules or anti-ritual. Um, uh, it was all about what is your personal experience with God? Mine's being an atheist, but I really appreciated the community and how these people acted in the world. So I started hanging out um, around Quaker meetings more. I went to um, one of my favorite professors' uh, funeral service in uh, Colorado, and it was basically three and a half hours of people standing up and telling stories and sitting back down. So when you go into a Quaker meeting, um, there is a conservative wing in the Midwest, but uh, the non-programmed Quakers, there's no minister, there's nothing on the walls. It's very simple, almost like Amish or uh, um, Shaker, but um, they're not um, stuck in time like Amish. And Amish is just people that started following one guy that was a Mennonite. So over in Europe, um, because of this belief, they didn't believe in the monarchies and they were the first people that wouldn't honor uh, titles and they wouldn't um, respond to kings and queens and dukes and duchesses and all that that controlled the land and stuff. So they were a pretty big threat to start off with. Um, and then they also um, said, well, you know, if one of these uh, commandments is thou shalt not kill, I guess uh, we got to take that a little farther than what's been happening. And they refused to um, respond to drafts. So when these kings and queens were drafting all the poor people to go in and fight their property wars just to get more land and more stuff, um, they said, nah, I don't think so. And so that was another big threat, and they got persecuted pretty well. So they came over here, and uh, one of them luckily was um, from a wealthy family in England and knew the king and was given um, the land for Pennsylvania. And so um, the interesting thing is that when they came over and colonized Pennsylvania, for 85 years, they had uh, complete peace with uh, Native Americans. Um, they traded with them. They bought the land from them um, where Massachusetts and the Puritans and the Pilgrims, they were at war with the Native Americans within the first 20 years that they were there. Um, and so on top of that, um, they had uh, other influences. Um, the joke story um, that's supposed to be true is Ben Franklin, who is from Boston, travels to Philadelphia and he's exhausted. He sees all these people going into a um, a pretty simple building so he thinks it's a tavern and he sits down and they're all really quiet and he fell asleep and um, when he wakes up he goes what happened he goes oh you fell asleep what are you doing oh we're worshiping really and nobody said anything nobody bothered him he thought it was great you know it's like so he started you know um, asking about what was going on and moved to Philadelphia because he really liked this uh, community and um so I see these connections and ties to things that I've done in the past that I didn't really uh, realize came from that. Um, an example was uh, I was a Boy Scout as a kid, was an Eagle Scout and Order of the Arrow. And the Order of the Arrow was based on the satchel that the Native American Lenape Indians gave to um, William Penn's agent to purchase the land for Pennsylvania. Um and there were all these other weird little connections like that that I would find over time that I got fascinated with. Um, and so, you know, over time, 
um, got to know about the American Friends Service Committee, and it was the Quakers that had basically institutionalized the ability to be a conscientious objector after World War II. And uh, there were other examples like that, that um, it just seemed like these people were walking the talk. And uh, so um, it's had a really nice effect on me in terms of feeling like I'm part of a community wherever I go. So a lot of times when I'm traveling, I'll, I'll stay at one of the accommodations rooms that they'll have at a meeting house um, and, you know, do some work trade for a couple of days. And um, I did that in Pittsburgh. I've done that in Ann Arbor. I've done it in several other places. And um, oh, just on this trip, um, going down the coast, I went to Ben Lomond, which is a Quaker retreat center right uh, within the uh, uh, Ben Lomond State Park uh, between San Jose and Santa Cruz. And it's a redwood forest. And it was just a beautiful place. Just pulled in, said, can we look around? And they said, sure. And said, if you want to come back, you can always, you know, work for a couple of days. You got skills, that kind of thing. So yeah. it was a nice stop as part of this trip. Now, how does, okay, so then I like the Quaker concept. How does it uh, relate to the Eastern religions and spirituality? Well, so what you do when you go into a meeting is you sit down quietly and you're supposed to sit and listen. And then the spirit um, of God, whatever, will move you to say something. And they have a whole kind of process of how to, uh, to discern what rises to the occasion worth standing up like you're not supposed to think about something ahead of time and come in with a pre prescribed statement you're not supposed to read anything you're supposed to literally be moved to say something based on what you're thinking about and so that process is essentially the equivalent of meditation yeah so just like a vipassana meditation you're sitting there trying to eradicate all of the distractions so that you can focus in on how you would be moved to, to speak. And sometimes um, it has nothing to do with what anybody else has said. Other times somebody will be moved to respond, but you're supposed to wait and keep at least a 30 second uh, moment of silence before somebody jumps up and, and responds. And so, uh, because I end up being a little bit too talkative at times, it's also been a nice training for me of how to take a breath before I say something and uh, be a little bit more discerning about um, how I talk. Um, I've always been sort of uh, just say what's on my mind and then apologize afterwards. And so I'm learning a better process, I think. Um, so anyways, um, yeah, I would say that the feeling- It's like a group meditation. Yeah, it is. You have that- It's like an active presence, like what comes to you. You know, that's like, um, like in my art, in recent years where i've really been like leaning into this edge of zero preparation in terms of like a forethought of a design or a concept yeah. and then everything that i'm doing what i'm really just trying to do is like get out of my own head like uh or just like work through my thoughts or whatever I mean, like um it's kind of an expression of you know spirit moving through me yeah like that right so I guess the thing that I find um, that I would describe as part of that is that while I am um, an atheist in terms of the idea that there's somebody up there pulling strings and somebody dictating rules to people and that sort of thing, 
I do believe in the sacredness of life. And what I mean by that is in all things. Like, so the idea of how um, special nature is and uh, how sacred the earth is and how uh, we have a responsibility to it. And that responsibility carries back to all these people that need to, you know, be able to live off of that. And so there's this kind of connection that goes to everything that I find I have a spiritual uh, basis. So that's what my faith is about. It's more about that life and that connection and that responsibility than it is about any um, entity that I'm supposed to be, you know, trying to keep happy. Yeah. Yeah, which is, it's, and the entity concept, it's like, these are abstract concepts that people that are ineffable, they're bigger than we can describe or and we can't put labels on them. And so it's like really language is like a, a meeting point between people's minds and hearts and souls. And really the, the words are really like placeholders. Um, yeah. So when they get like locked down and indoctrinated and then described as like, this is how it is. It's uh, yeah. It, it's hard to, it's hard to sell that. I feel like, but if you zoom out, really a lot of the main concepts are all there. They're all, they're all the same. Well, that's the, yeah, that's the key thing is that because it's human experience and people have come up with this trial and ever uh, trial and error effort to survive um, all across the planet from all these varieties of situations and sense of places that we've talked about earlier. Um, there's the same things. They're just sounding a little different. An example would be um, if you were in Catholicism to um, do um, Hail Marys over and over and over again. Um, the point of that is to take your mind off of whatever it was that you did to need to say it. And that's just a mantra. Yeah. You know, and so it's the same concept with the same goal. You know, I mean, prayer, um, I don't know whether it's a conversation to anybody or it's just you being able to come up with an aphorism that gives you a way to focus on something that you want to do, either be better or um, ask for forgiveness or whatever. It's, it's not, like you said, it's, it's not the words per se. It's the concept of whatever it is that you're trying to, to grasp. Yeah. And you see the same thing happening all across. Like, uh, I mean, that, yeah, it's an intention setting yep. and it's like centering yourself around um, an essence and like, uh yeah manifesting now one of the things that um was a big influence on me when i was younger was a guy named joseph campbell yeah who, um, wrote all these books on mythology the hero's and, journey uh, yeah the hero's journey absolutely and um the best part of what he said to me uh well he didn't say it to me but the best thing that he said um for me was that um all of these things have validity but you got to pick one you can't you know, surf the buffet at the top and get the benefits that any one of these would give until you delve into the practice um, over and over and over again and get deeper into whatever it is they have to offer. I mean, they've spent centuries creating um, these concepts and rituals and things like that, but you can't really get the benefits until you pick one. And it doesn't really matter which one, to be honest, as long as you do it in a um, a good way right it's the process 
of diving deep. Right. That's what is going to change you and make you, you know, take you through it. And um, I mean, I, I definitely, I feel like anything, any type of art, any type of like uh, creative pursuit, you're going to run into all the same types of problems. They're just in different shapes and forms. And that's why, and that's why I think that this podcast works really well is because we, I can be talking to an architect, a painter, a musician, a firefighter, anybody. And like similar, we're all saying the same thing. We're just using different descriptor words that are like technical jargon, but really right. like, we're all doing the same exact thing. And that's, that's like the beauty of art and one of the beauties of life. And, um, and it's, I mean, it's a lot like what you're talking about with hitchhiking. Like you, you got to know to look for it. Like if you, if you know it's there, then you can like a lot, I guess a lot of people just don't look for it and they don't look for the similarities across people and genres. They look for differences and then they get held up there. Right. And and then they think that we're different when we're not. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that's interesting um, in architecture is that um, you have to collaborate with a whole variety of people. So one of the most fun creative things for me was when I worked in offices and had to put together teams of other people to go after a project. Um, and so it would be, who's do we know? Who has this skill? Who can do what we can't do? And how do we make a bigger team to make something happen? So when I was doing urban design plans, you know, you'd have to have traffic consultants, marketing people, economists, um, you know, designers, uh, graphic designers, all of these people coming together and probably the most exciting, um, fun event to do in that field is a charrette, where instead of doing a design over the course of six months and having to call these different offices, wait for the email to come back or the drawings to show up, you literally get everybody together for a long weekend and it's like creating a giant war room and you're all just walking back and forth from each table and you're doing the drawings and the public's walking around looking at the tables and every 12 hours or so you throw stuff up on the wall and they're going, you gotta be kidding me. No way. All right, we'll change it. You know, and you do, and you, and it just evolves and you do like six months worth of work in three days and you're exhausted by the end, but you're so excited. And then the public comes back in and sees the final product and they can't believe what they've, uh, what you've accomplished in three days. It's, it's really exciting and really, um, uh, a great way to get the community fired up about it too, you know, because they're not just waiting. Am I going to get an email? Am I going to have to read an article? And when's this going to happen? They, they, the whole thing becomes an event that um, gets really dynamic. Yeah, that's awesome. That's like uh, I was in a mural. I was a featured muralist at a at the Joshua Tree Music Festival in October, mm. and um, there were a bunch of muralists, and everybody had their wall and you had four days to make your art and you, you know, while you're making your art, you're going to music shows and you're talking to people and there's funky weird shit everywhere. And you're checking out the other muralists of what they're doing and how it's developing. And um, it's like a really cool, like symbiotic uh, energy when, when you can like work and, and you guys were working directly with each other on the ideas. So that yeah. would be like times five. Um, yeah. Where was the uh, festival held? um 
at like a campground that was just north of it's like east of the town and and just north slightly okay um it's well, not what in the, the town? what's the town oh joshua tree oh okay yeah so we stayed in indio for several days in palm springs and then drove up and went to um joshua tree uh, on the north side and again one of these weird freak highlights was i'm uh, talking to one of the park rangers when we're in the park and i go so do you know the story of Graham Parsons and uh, all of that? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, go to the Joshua Tree Inn and go to room eight. And that's where he died. And do you know the story? No. All right. So Graham Parsons was basically um, sort of the influence that got Emmylou Harris started. He was part of the Flying Burrito Brothers and um, is considered one of the seminal people that started country rock in LA in the seventies and the sixties. Okay. So, um, he had this deal. There's a movie about it too. And, uh, it was, the deal was with his road manager. That if something happened to them, either one of them, the other one would bury them in Joshua tree national park at their favorite, uh, lookout spot that looks, um, towards Palm Springs and Coachella Valley. So he, dies of a drug overdose in this hotel um he's from florida and the family wants the body to be sent back to florida because then the estate would get uh probated in florida and they could get the money so <laughs> he's literally at lax airport and about to be shipped and the buddy sneaks in somehow and steals the coffin off of the truck going to the plane to ship him back <laughs> he drives all the way into the park, gets to their favorite spot, covers him with gasoline, lights him up, and burns. Except the ranger comes in and stops him halfway through and arrests him. And it turns out that uh, other than um, having a fire in the park, they couldn't um, charge him with anything because there was no laws about stealing dead people. <laughs> like, California didn't have a law that prohibited you stealing a dead body <laughs> so he got off from all of that and they ended up sending the remains back to Florida and the family ended up getting the body but this is like this legend within um, Southern California and uh, music so um, you know I've heard stories about this my whole life <laughs> so it was great because we ended up finding the hotel they weren't open so we couldn't go to the room where there's this memorial set up but it has a, a picture in the front window that says here lies the spirit of Graham Parsons Graham Parsons <laughs> that's awesome I like that um, alright there's one thing that came up earlier that I wanted to circle back on um and so this is kind of like in conjunction in relation to your way of traveling and your way of um, experiencing the world. And I'm wondering what you make of synchronicities. Um, oh, I'd say um, synchronicities have a lot to do with um, being in tune with your own senses. So if I have something that I'm looking for or I'm interested in um, without even knowing about it, it's not a thought thing. 
um, but it directs all of my senses to pay attention to the environment I'm in. And all of a sudden I start noticing things that connect to that. So I can scan 50 buildings, but if there's something in my brain that says, keep an eye out for this, I'll pick the one out and go, oh, wow, there it is right there. And I'll, you know, go to it, you know, um, or if I'm having a conversation with somebody and there's something I need, or there's something I want, it becomes part of the conversation in a way where somebody will say, oh, I can do this. And the next thing you know, you're collaborating on something later down the line. Um, so I would say the biggest thing is to just pay attention. It's like, um, uh, it's a sort of a Zen thing, I guess, of, um, again, not having a, a goal so stuck in your mind that you ignore all the possibilities um to get you to that that might help and then just trying to do it the hard way until you follow this one line being open to all the possibilities of how to get there solves a lot of problems but it's because you're um being open to it yeah yeah and i like uh bringing it back to like the zen concept it's um like you're you don't want to be goal oriented. You want to be sort of like intention oriented, but then not, right. not like hold tight to a goal. And, um, you know, with your traveling, I would imagine, you know, sometimes I feel like when I'm traveling on certain trips and things are great and people like the people I'm with are awesome and, and like everything just feels in flow. It's like synchronicities just like fire off all over the place. It's like left. Right. And, and, um, Yeah. It's well, I'll play. Um, I'll put about two or three things together, but the synchronicity of um, sort of the synergy of the the whole being greater than the sum of its parts, there'll be an experience that'll happen that'll be memorable to me. And I knew I just wanted to do something like I wanted to go kayaking in San Diego Bay before we left San Diego and we're in the area for a week, and so. I didn't know when that was going to happen. I had my own kayak with me. And so Martha, we, we had plans for Thanksgiving with a friend of hers um, up by uh, you, actually. Um, I can't remember, uh, Forest Park, something like that. Um, so we didn't have to be there until one o'clock. So she was going to hang out and I was going to go kayaking. So I put in at um, the Historic Maritime Museum um, at about six in the morning on Thanksgiving day, there's nobody out. It's a holiday. And so I, I'm kind of on the wharf and I'm right next to the aircraft carrier. And the only voice I can hear is coming from a speaker down at the end. Turns out it's a statue of Bob Hope. And there's about 20 um, bronze statues of service people that would have been at one of his Christmas specials. And it's just him doing a monologue of jokes to these statues. So that's the first thing that I hear as I'm putting the kayak in the water. So now I'm underneath the prow of this ship and all of a sudden there's like 20 other historic ships there. And the only thing I can hear are planes landing at the airport. And so I paddle back to where I was gonna take the boat out and all of a sudden I can hear it's eight o'clock and across the water from Point Loma, I can hear a bugle doing Reveille, um, you know, to wake up. Mm -hmm. And then right after it, the national anthem on this holiday underneath of 
this historic aircraft carrier, and I'm the only one out on the water in the whole bay, practically. <laughs> so that was pretty spectacular. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, it's cool when you put yourself out there, you get in awesome situations occasionally. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Nice. There's one other thing that I was thinking would be cool to talk about or hear you talk about is, um, okay, so you experienced cancer mm-hmm. and then you've moved through it, moved past it. And, uh, you know, we talked a lot about it when you were visiting because you were still like coming off of it pretty pretty quickly or right after that why don't you go into like what that experience was like and sort of some like uh i don't know revelations or epiphanies or what what you learned from it sure um well for me um i was kind of lucky uh the kind of cancer i had had a high success rate anyway um but i didn't know anything about it um when i got diagnosed um i immediately went into this uh sort of withdraw into myself and I had to kind of go through um, a semester of biology in a week um, just to try to figure out what the hell everybody was talking about to me and uh, my first four runs um, they gave me this heavy duty dose I was described as stage 4b which is as bad as you can get um, because they thought that I had it in my spleen and my liver as well Um, I had Hodgkin's lymphoma which is uh, basically in your lymph nodes. And so um, once I figured out what was going on and what it felt like, um, it wasn't so bad. But the first four rounds, I was in the ICU each time, um, had to get extra. Um, I was dehydrated one time. I got MRSA another time, pneumonia another time. Um, and I didn't realize how bad it was until I introduced my daughter to my oncologist later. And he said that I almost died twice in that four rounds. And so um, I didn't even know that at the time. I just had all these sensations going on and just trusted everybody. And so when I came out of that um, and figured out that I was going to be okay, uh, it was interesting because um, I went in right away to start the treatments after I had my biopsy. And I didn't even, I trusted my doctor and her recommendation from my oncologist. So after the four rounds, I looked him up online to see who he was. <laughs> and I didn't do any second opinions or anything like that. I just went with this guy. Well, it turns out he was at the University of Michigan the same time that I was at Purdue. And uh, we were the same age. And so I started thinking about it. And I jokingly asked him um, the next time on my fifth round. Um, so do you remember a football game where... Michigan was number one in the polls and Purdue um, beat you 16 to 14 with a field goal in the last 10 seconds. I mean, I know you're probably in a lab somewhere, you know, you're not a jock type, but um, don't know if you followed football or anything. And he goes, not only did I remember that game, but the kid who kicked the football for you guys went to high school with me. (laughs) And so we immediately started talking about sports and our families and stuff that we did growing up. And this was uh, at the time when Miguel Cabrera um, was about to uh, win the Triple Crown for the Tigers. And it was the first time that anybody had done it since Kyle Yastrzemski when I was a kid for the Red Sox uh, in 67. And so he literally goes into his office, comes back with a stack of emails 
to show me um, all the interactions he'd had with his cousins about going to Tiger Stadium and to all these uh, ball games. And so from that point forward, I knew that I was not just a number to him, that I, I was more than just another one of 100 patients that he had to work through in his schedule. So we would come in and I'd have a 20 minute appointment and uh, I go, just tell me how the numbers are doing and um, what, what's up. And he, we'd do it in five minutes and then he'd stay and we'd talk sports and uh, about our kids and um, <laughs> things like that for the next 20 uh, minutes or so. And so he's become a good friend and uh, you know, we're supposed to go golfing sometime this spring. And uh, I was just so lucky. Um, and so he, um, you know, did a wonderful job and saved my life. And so I remembered uh, a couple of years later, I was meeting with the brother of a friend who had been in a bad accident and became a born again Christian when he was a, a kid after this accident. And he, he looks at me and goes, wow, that was a pretty good uh, run that you had there. Um, you must have believed in something to, um, you know, to get through that. And he's waiting for me, you know, to to give him his confirmation. And I said, you damn, damn right. I believed in my oncologist. <laughs> and he, he's pretty uh, disappointed in the answer. He but, his head. Um, <laughs> it was true. Um, so the other thing I would say is that uh, after those first four rounds, um, I never felt any pain. Um, I couldn't tell you where I had tumors that were um, being worked on in my body. Um, I was exhausted and tired. Um, this is probably not a good one for the podcast, but I often say that I knew how to deal with chemo because I'd done hard drugs before. And so <laughs> um, I knew what it was like to be exhausted after an episode of something. And I never let my head turn into the depressive thoughts that, uh, you know, you just tend to get when you're exhausted. And yeah. so I would feel better and uh, could ride it out. So um, I would never, ever wish cancer on anybody, but I enjoyed it. And I don't mean that I enjoyed feeling sick, but the people that took care of me were spectacular. And the number of interactions that I had in the hospitals with, um, you know, people from all over the world um, was just wonderful. And I moved to Seattle in part because of how diverse a community is. But people tend to still hang in their neighborhoods around people that are like them by choice, not because of segregation or anything. Uh, but in the hospital, it's just all over the place. So I had Samoan people, I had Filipino nurses, I had a woman from Kenya who's pushing my wheelchair around and tells me the story about how she was um, brought up in British boarding schools and she had this boyfriend that she knew all the time growing up and he was a couple of years older than her and he left and came to the United States and she didn't think she'd ever see him again. Um, but he kept in touch with her brother to find out what she was up to. And um, the brother convinced her that she should go to the United States. Didn't say anything about why or where, but that she should go ahead and it would be a good move. So she does, and she arrives in New York City and this guy met her at the airport without her even knowing that he was. And they got <laughs> married and now have a kid and they're talking about where they're going camping for the weekend. And, you know, she's just really nice pushing me around, telling me these stories. So my day would be filled with stuff like that. It was great. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. You like, and it's funny because, you know, it's more of you and your art as a person 
you know, your creative art of just like being curious about the world. But then this is like a new, like the hospital is like your arena for the time. Well, here's where the fun part was. Um, we had these <laughs> giant picture windows and I was on like the 11th floor and you could look out and I had this whole view of downtown Seattle and I-5, the interstate that goes north-south. And so I loved looking out the window, but the beds had, you know, a, a mechanism to raise and lower it. And they wanted you to stay at a certain level. And so I would always raise it higher so that I could see over the ledge um, uh, at the bottom of the window. And the nurse would, on every shift would come in and freak out at me and tell me that I had to lower it. And I would tell her, look, I've already talked to the head nurse. I've got a clearance. I'm a designer, urban designer. I love looking at the city. I just want to be able to see over the edge of the window. And it would be this constant battle. I'd have to go to the head nurse every single shift so that she could confirm to whoever was working in my room that it was okay to, to be higher than the safe level. <laughs> Probably one of the most memorable parts of being in the hospital for me. Yeah. Well, and then you went through a lot of uh, like lifestyle changes, it seemed like, like food-wise. Um, uh, well, I was always um, pretty much 90% uh, vegetarian or so. Um, and I've always been interested in, um, you know, how food's grown. Uh, you know, living in Indiana, um, you know, you get uh, aware of that is the main part of the economy. And you know, I went back to Brad and Kay, who was your stepdad and my um, best friend, um, fraternity brother. I still visit them. They have 10 kids and they had 70 animals. Um, and just, it's always fun to be there. So food's always been an interesting thing for me. Um, and then cooking is one of those creative things of trial and error. So I usually don't follow recipes, but can cook just about anything. Um, it may not be fantastic, but my um, sense is that if it tastes a little different than you expected, we'll just call it something else. <laughs> um, so my, one thing I would say, though, is that all the cliches about having cancer are true, and they become cliches because everybody experiences it to a certain degree. And so when you realize that you might die and then you live, you, know, you say, I'm not wasting any more time. You know, you, you're going to do the things that you want to do, and you're going to try to um, stay in contact with the people you love in a way that is more memorable and you want to say the things that you, you know, may not have said in the past. And, you know, I was probably a little bit over the top for a while there, um, but it was really important to make sure that um, I, again, kept in touch with these people. So this 10-year period of doing all these trips and traveling, a big part of that was going back and making sure I could reconnect with um, different areas of my life, different places that I lived, and the people that were important to me during that. Um, you know, it was pretty wonderful to have your... Uh, sister being at school here and then getting to see your mom and uh chris uh several times um during the visit so you know that was yeah. pretty wonderful and then i would go back and you know chris and i would get together while your mom was already up in montana and things like that so yeah yeah it's pretty nice yeah it's like uh <clears throat> it's like a new lease on life you got you got some extra time and i mean yeah, I've definitely had experiences, not to that degree, but when you when you're faced with, you know, your own mortality, 
And you're like, wow, I could not be here anymore. Everything's everything's so different. Yep. Um, I was pretty lucky too. Um, later on in that process, I met Martha and it was surprising that, um, uh, we just slowly grew into this relationship that's pretty wonderful. Um, and it turned out that she is um, retired now from being a nurse practitioner in a women's cancer ward, um, basically uh, dealing with breast cancer. Um, and she would read the diagnoses um, based on DNA uh, tests and things like that, and then talk to these women all day long about what they had. And then surgeons would do the surgery, somebody else would do radiation and that kind of thing. But she was the person that was the main interface with these people. And so um, she's one of the most uh, authentic people I know I've ever met in a way that uh, there's not a lot of wasted uh, energy in terms of how she thinks about people and stuff. And the irony of that, though, is that as we started to travel, as we started to do these projects together, um, you know, she's got a daughter. So I've got... um, I'm not married, but I've got a grandson and another one on the way. Um, cancer was actually like the 27th thing we had in common or of, of, of interest. You know, it rarely comes up in most of our conversations, other than that we both support each other's health now in a way that's based on a, a larger awareness. Yeah. Wow. Magic. Yeah, it was. It was pretty nice. It has been pretty nice. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to say before we were done, though, was another big thing that um, I have to still give um, some seriousness and credence to is that when I was younger, um, you know, my education became really important to me at a later date than when I could have taken it serious and then been able to do more in my career. You know, and so I have a lot of people that I look up to um, in my profession. And had I latched on to this earlier and taken school more seriously, I would have been able to collaborate more, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to dish the idea of standard education and that sort of thing. But it's really important to, to, to listen to what you're interested in and then find out who your heroes are and then go after it. Um, and, you know, not be afraid to um, follow that and introduce yourself and have conversations and ask for opportunities. And so when I was in school, um, what I realized, I couldn't decide whether I wanted to be a landscape architect, an architect, an urban designer. And then what I realized at some point that made it easy was all I needed to learn was how to design. Once I knew what that process was, the way you do research first, and then the way you set up a problem and then the way you try to test solving the problem, it's the same process, whether you're designing a city or a piece of furniture. And so once it's simplified down to thinking about that, I let go of a lot of the anxiety of what I didn't know related to all these other things. And so that made it easier to have this um, kind of mode that you mentioned earlier that has different requirements of uh, language that you communicate with people. But whether you're an engineer or whether you're an architect or whether you're a planner or whether you're a landscape architect, all of those things feed into each other and you're talking a language that is common 
so that you can move forward together. So that helped me a lot in terms of letting go of anxiety about what am I doing? Should I be doing something else? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then when the anxiety is gone, then, then you're just in go mode. Yeah. Then the creativity really can happen. Yeah. The anxiety often is what gets in the way of the, the creative process. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do get caught up on um, the little nuances of like, well, do I want to do this or do I want to do that? And like, really, those things are kind of irrelevant because really try this, try that. And it, it's all it's going to get you to where you're going to go. And the earlier you are failing first attempt at learning or in learning, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, sooner you're going to just like be on the path and sooner the creativity is going to flow right yeah great i think that was i think that was it i think i think that was a podcast right there sounds good (laughs) so separate from that how you doing i'm good i'm really good things are busy i'm in full creative mode like the creative how much you get to do besides the murals or is that full-time gig all the time now uh that's a full-time gig um and but i'm also doing work on canvas and um yeah pushing that still doing the wedding business yeah the wedding art is a thing still um yeah imagine that's something that gets busier in the summertime than in the winter yeah it's seasonal it grows um it's like here i'm gonna stop the recording we'll call this good um So that's it. That's the Art and Life podcast. Thank you again for tuning in and listening. Hope this is inspiring your life and your work in awesome ways. If you want to check out my art and my offerings, like fine art prints and cool merchandise with my art on it, jump over to my website. It's taylorgallegosart.com. And you can also follow me and connect with me on Instagram and LinkedIn. So thanks. Till next time.